Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Koo. Kathy is the Chief Licensing Advisor in the Palo Alto office of Wilson Sonsini. Kathy is also a member of the Technology Transactions and the Patents and Innovation Practice Groups. Kathy is an internationally recognized leader in the field of technology transfer. Kathy served as the Executive Director of Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing for 27 years. During that period, the OTL licensed hundreds of new technologies, bringing in $1.8 billion, most of which went back to support research and education at Stanford. Kathy also spearheaded the development and implementation of nine principles related to university technology licensing. The principles are set forth in a document entitled, In the Public Interest, Nine Points to Consider in Licensing University Technology. More than 120 institutions have adopted the principles since they were published in 2007. Kathy has served on the Certified Licensing Professional Board of Governors, BioBoard, and LES Board of Trustees. Kathy was the president of Autumn from 1988 to 1990. In 2001, Kathy received the Autumn by Dole Award. Kathy received her BS in chemical engineering from Cornell University and an MS in mechanical engineering from Washington University. Kathy is also a registered U.S. patent agent. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you here, and thank you so much for taking part in the podcast. Kathy, I generally like to start things off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Stanford at the Office of Technology Licensing and now how you're ultimately at the law firm of Wilson Sonsini? Well, this is sort of a long story because I have a long history. Take your time. <laughs> but my journey into tech transfer was just really, truly happenstance. Um, in 1979 at Stanford, they knew that the Baidol law was going to be implemented, and they just wanted to be prepared. The sponsored projects office wanted to be diligent about being able to comply with Baidol, and they decided they wanted to hire a patent engineer to help inventors disclose their inventions to the government. So on the personal side, at the time, I had had a very eclectic career up until then. I changed jobs frequently and mostly because I was bored. Um, my first job out of college, I worked at Sigma Chemical, so I had a bio background a little bit as a research scientist. And then I taught chemistry in a community college. Then I worked for Monsanto Company. And at the time, Monsanto had funded this big, huge project at Harvard around Harvard's tumor and genesis factor um, research. And it was really important. It was sort of very visible. It was one of the biggest university industry uh, agreements at the time. 
And so I worked on that. And then I decided to move out west to the Bay Area. So I worked at the University of California in dialysis. And I was a clinical trial coordinator for a dialysis clinical trial. So I was a chemical engineer by training, so I could fill the patent engineer part of things. I knew about patents because I had been an inventor on a patent in Monsanto. I knew about clinical trials. I had sort of a broad background. And so when I saw the job, it really looked intriguing, particularly since I was looking for something more interesting. I loved it. And they loved, they, they picked me. I was really surprised because I was still pretty young at the time. And I did this patent engineering job for about two and a half years, and I loved it. I worked with all the inventors. They told me about their inventions. And then I would just write it up in about two or three pages, sort of trying to get the basic um, import of the invention. But my friends, and they knew I loved my job, they'd always say, well, what happened to that invention that you worked on? And I had really no idea. Because once I wrote up the invention, it went to a different office. It went to the Office of Technology Licensing. And at the time, OTL was very small. There were only two or three people in that office. And at some point around two and a half years that I had been at Stanford, they were looking for a new licensing person. Now, my job at Stanford at the time, this patent engineering thing, was the only job in the country like that. So I knew I was career limited in that position. So I was thinking about technology licensing. It sounded interesting, but it sounded scary to me. Uh, I didn't know anything about contracts. Negotiations sounded really scary. I wasn't that certain about business. But I had worked in companies, so it's not as if it was totally foreign to me. Anyway, um, they were interviewing all sorts of high-flying people, venture capitalists, and then people with MBAs and lots of industry experience. But, you know, finally, when... um, I realized that they were interviewing a fresh graduate from college. I thought, well, I guess I should apply. So I applied and they um, ended up picking me. So I really have a lot to be grateful for to Neil Jammer for picking me to be a licensing associate. And honestly, it's never, it was never boring at Stanford. So I stayed a very long time. I became director in 1991 when Neil's retired. And then I was director for 27 years. Um, I knew we were getting a new president at Stanford, and I knew the leadership would change. And so I thought, well, this is a good time to to retire. So in 2018, I retired with full plans just to chill out and travel and do whatever. And then um, a colleague uh, that I had known for years and years, but always he was on the other side of the table, Um, Vern Norville from Wilson Sonsini called me up and he said, we really want you. You can do whatever you want and we'll take whatever it takes. We'll do whatever it takes to get you. So it sounded too good to be true. (laughs) It'll offer him. It generally is, quite honestly. Yeah, really. And the, the reality is I'm not a lawyer. So it's a very unusual position. Um. And the commute was going to be exactly the same. At the stoplight, I used to turn right to go to my Stanford office, and now I just turn left to go to the law firm, Wilson Sonsini. So I've been there about two and a half years now, and um, what I do is try to help uh, companies, generally startup companies, pull licenses from the universities. 
And so it's really been fun to sort of see it from the other side too. So that's an amazing journey and career. And it sounds like you've transitioned really well going from Stanford's OTL to a law firm, even though you've kind of switched hats, so to speak. Uh, it sounds like it's gone pretty smoothly for you. Yeah, it has really been interesting to see it from the other side. I think I've learned a lot. I um, have learned even more acutely how hard it is for these startups um, to grow and how they're always worrying about you know, new fundraising and, and partnering, basically in biotech. They're always worrying about the next transaction that's going to happen. But the reason I think I'm still in this business is that I really want to make tech transfer effective for both parties. And it's really important both for the university and for the companies that it's a win-win situation. And, and I feel like um, it's very important to say that this is a long-term relationship. And the best thing is to, you know, maintain good relationships with the universities and the companies. Now, Kathy, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You said when you joined the OTL at Stanford, um, it was right around the time uh, Baidol was passed. And you were a very small office at the time. You mentioned about two or three people. Can you tell us the impact that Baidol had on your office and its eventual growth? Baidol was very impactful for the profession. For Stanford, uh, at the time, we already had these agreements with the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. At the time, that was called DHEW. And we also had an agreement with NSF. So for those two agencies, Stanford was able to handle those inventions, and we were able to take title. But it was wonderful. We all, the universities, celebrated the fact that we could then have a uniform law which enabled the universities to take title to any federally funded inventions. And it made it so much easier for uh, handling inventions from the Army, from the DOE, Department of Ed uh, Energy, from the Navy, et cetera. And so what Baidol did, both for Stanford and for the country, was enable us to develop and encourage all universities to set up tech transfer offices. And we developed a nationwide system for doing tech transfer. Many, many offices were formed in the 1980s, and we created a profession so that now people aspire to join this profession. When I, when I started in tech transfer, nobody had even heard of it hardly. So I don't think we can overstate the impact of the Baidol law. Now, Kathy, during the intro, I mentioned that you spearheaded the development and implementation of nine principles related to university technology licensing that are um, in a document entitled In the Public Interest, Nine Points to Consider in Licensing University Technology. And that's been a wildly successful document. I know on the Autumn website, it says that more than 120 institutions have adopted those principles since they were published back in 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about what led to the development of those principles? And for those of our listeners who are not familiar with them, what those nine principles actually are? Sure. I, I love to talk about them. So in the summer of 2006, and around that time, um, the University of Wisconsin had a bunch of stem cell patents that they were licensing. And one of the things they wanted to do was have other universities take licenses to those patents. And so they were asking universities to take licenses. And at the time, 
I was really, I became really concerned about that because if universities ask other universities to take licenses to their patents, we could just spend all day, <laughs> every single day, every single hour taking licenses to each other's patents. So I was very concerned about that. And, and I had talked to the dean of research, who was my boss, and he thought that it would be really useful to convene a small meeting of tech transfer people and the research officers, the other equivalent deans of researchers from these various universities, and that we would just convene a meeting and talk about some of these issues. One of the key people that we invited was David Korn. He was with the AAMC, the uh, Association of American Medical Colleges. He used to be the dean of research, uh, dean of um, medicine at Stanford, so we knew him well, and he joined our meeting. And we convened the meeting um, just ostensibly to talk about tech transfer and research. And it, to me, it was the first time where our academic bosses and we sat in the same room, and it was really a wonderful time to have a conversation as a group. David Korn had said, you know, let's not just have a meeting and discuss and then go away. Let's do something with the contents of, of this meeting and put together a white paper, essentially. And so that's what we did. We put together this nine points to consider for university licensing. It's, it's sort of what I consider a pledge of allegiance. It's not that we have to follow the nine points or we're you know, going to get in trouble or anything like this. But it's sort of how we think of tech transfer and how we as university tech transfer offices should behave. So the very first principle was that universities should reserve the right to practice licensed inventions for each other and allow other nonprofit organizations to use those inventions. And this was the first principle that addressed the Wisconsin situation. And on that, I think all the universities are doing that. They're retaining rights for themselves. They should be able to practice their own invention and for other nonprofit and university organizations to practice the inventions. So we're not gonna fight among each other and we're not going to sue each other for patent infringement. That's really good. Um, secondly, this was very important. We wanna structure exclusive licenses to be in a manner that encourages um, development, technology development. And that, that principle has evolved over time. In the very early years of university tech transfer, even at Stanford, we were sort of loosey-goosey about diligence. We said, okay, you'll diligently commercialize this invention. But nowadays, the universities are very strict about diligence. They want to have a clear plan of how a product is going to be developed and a promise from the company that this product will be developed in a timely manner. And I think this is really a, a good thing to do. Um, the third one was to minimize the licensing of future improvements. And this was an issue when a, a company takes a license and the faculty or the inventor is still doing research at the university, there are probably going to be improvement patents that come from the research after the license has been signed. And so there was this question about how long should you allow a university lab to give inventions or to license inventions to a particular company? You wouldn't want a lab to be 
you know, obligated for 10 years. But on the other hand, there was a view that there should be some possibility for getting improvement patents as they come up. And so, again, this principle is to say you can give improvement patents if a, a lab is making new improvements to something that's already been licensed. But don't make it forever. Make it time limited. And so nowadays, many universities will limit it to a few years, maybe one or two years, or connect it to the patent prosecution. University tech transfer just creates conflict of interest, typically, especially with the whole focus on startups lately. The faculty or the inventors are on both sides of the fence. They're often at the university and they're often at the company. And how do you separate that work? And so the tech transfer office in the licensing of technology to a faculty startup will create the conflict. And so the office needs to be aware that they are creating the conflict and try to help manage that. I don't think that the tech transfer office should be in charge of deciding whether something is conflicted or not. That's an academic issue. And so, again, we just wanted to bring it to the fore there. Uh, number five was to ensure that there was broad access to research tools. Lots of research tools can be used by lots of companies. And if you get an exclusive license, sometimes it could be perceived that you're preventing the science from moving forward in an efficient manner. So they just wanted, we just wanted to ensure that you would make these research tools broadly available and the NIH has encouraged that through their own guidelines. Enforcement action, it's always nice to say, oh, I'm going to enforce my patent, but it's, it's a big deal for a university to enforce their patents. And clearly in tech transfer, you need to enforce the patents every once in a while so that companies in the world you know, take this uh, activity seriously. But also, one wouldn't want to take on an enforcement action frivolously. So they just said, be careful about that. Do it thoughtfully. And I think universities have been trying to do that thoughtfully. Um, at the time, uh, in 2006 or so, and even now, probably there's a lot of focus on export regulations. So the seventh one is be sure that, that universities are complying with export regulations. A lot of the university research results in very, very high-tech kinds of inventions, and the universities need to really be conscious and conscientious about transferring those kinds of technologies in compliance with the law. The uh, APONA is interesting. Be mindful of implications of working with patent aggregators. And again, at the time, there were lots of organizations that wanted to buy up patents or pay minimal amount of dollars for some patents in order to sue another entity. And the university tech transfer community was feeling that we're, universities are about technology transfer, not trying to stop other people. And so patent aggregators, I mean, a, a startup is a patent aggregator to a certain extent. But it's not trying to aggregate, you know, hundreds of the patents and then just go sue lots of people. So we said universities should be conscious of that and be mindful. I mean, one can do it if you are, are um, thoughtful about working with them. And the last one was important, the ninth point. We only wanted to do nine points because 
everybody does 10 points. (laughs) (laughs) So we wanted a provision. We wanted universities to be mindful of unmet needs, uh, neglected patient populations or geographic areas. It's the, you know, do good part of technology transfer. And so that was an important um, principle to uphold. Well, thank you. I I think those are amazing. And I can see why they've been so widely um, adopted by so many institutions. So thank you again. Um, I did want to ask you, Kathy, you've had a really amazing career licensing technology. So I'd be curious to know what you think is most important in managing and or licensing innovations to give them the greatest opportunity for success. You know, this is a hard question to answer because there's not a single answer. Um, The reality is tech transfer is really hard. You're trying to find a home for very, very early stage technology. And honestly, many times companies and the public don't even realize that it's something that's worthwhile. So the success of licensing inventions really depends on many, many factors outside the control of the licensing office. I mean, the licensing office has to have good, high-quality inventions coming in to the office from their inventors. And again, that really depends on the kind of inventions you receive. You need good inventions. And then the second part is you need somebody who wants to receive these new good inventions. Who are willing? You need industry to be willing to take licenses to early-stage technology and take a chance on them. And in addition, the ecosystem plays an incredibly important part in creating an opportunity for success. What I think is under the control of the tech transfer office is, one, its reputation and its philosophy about what they think tech transfer is all about. And I'm of the school that tech transfer shouldn't be about the money necessarily. It's not all about the money. The money is part of it, but universities, I think, need to plant as many seeds, licensing seeds, as possible. They need to try to do as many good deals as possible, and I think success will come then. I don't believe that universities should try to optimize or maximize income generation. Universities, per se, are not a business like that. But I do believe universities need to try to help move the technology to industry and try to enable these licensees to have the best chance to be successful. If the company, if the licensee is successful, the university will be successful. So Kathy, I wanted to ask you, I know you're a member of the Bidol Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with that coalition? Um, I think the Bidol Coalition is very important to keep getting the message out there that Bidol is an important an essential part of technology transfer. And technology transfer between, among the universities to industry is really important in keeping our entrepreneurial culture and the culture of innovation in the US. I'm involved as much as they would like me to be involved. I'm out there, you know, banging the drums for Bidol. I think it's a very, very important law. Yeah, and you've been a strong advocate of Baidol over the course of your career. So I was wondering if you could provide your thoughts on some attempts to weaken the law. Specifically, we have this 
we've had it during this pandemic, this discussion around drug pricing and marching rights. And then most recently, President Biden's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Yes, it's a, patents and all of that are very complicated. It's a little bit of a reverse thinking for people who aren't familiar with patents. A patent gives uh, the owner or the exclusive licensee an incentive to develop something. And if you don't have exclusivity, if you don't have patent protection, a lot of time what's available to all is wanted by nobody. So I often say that Baidol is not the problem nor the solution to drug pricing. Um, to me, one should not use margin rights to control the price of a drug. In a way, it's really anti-capitalism and will kill university tech transfer for sure. A company licensing early stage technology from a university is taking a huge, big chance on the technology. It's very early stage. And if that product finally makes it to the marketplace, especially, let's say, a drug, which takes at least a, million, a billion dollars to get to the marketplace. And remember, most drugs don't even make it through the whole FDA approval process. If you're going to then dictate what the price is going to be, nobody is going to want to take a chance on this university technology. It's not quite analogous, but I think it's like saying to a baby, you can't make more than X dollars once you get a job 20, 25 years from now because you don't deserve making that much money. And I, I just think that it, it doesn't make any sense at all. With respect to the... President Biden's executive order, I feel that it's it's uh, not well thought through necessarily. And I'm uh, understandably, I think, uh, not happy with the particular part that affects the margin rights. <laughs> I am on the visiting committee for the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, NIST. And NIST is responsible for the implementation of the Baidu regulations. And so I chaired the subcommittee that made recommendations to NIST on their return on investment initiative. And this is where we very, very much supported NIST clarification on margin rights. What NIST wanted to say was that margin rights should not be used for price control only um, for only for price control under the law. You can march in for other things, but it shouldn't be for the pricing of product. So I'm very sorry that President Biden suggested putting this clarification on hold. At least it's on hold. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, there's still a little bit of uncertainty that doesn't, doesn't bode that well. I hope that they see it in a different light in the future. Well, switching gears, Kathy, I wanted to ask you about equity, diversity, and inclusion, because that's a very important topic that's being discussed in tech transfer offices all around the world. Can you give us your thoughts about what you think tech transfer offices are doing well with respect to EDI and perhaps what they need to work on? Well, I think tech transfer offices, a lot of them are focused on this, and it's a good thing. One of the I was involved at Stanford in a study. Before I retired, we looked at Stanford's data, for example, and just around women. We did a paper on women and invention, and we concluded that the women faculty 
and we focus it on faculty, invented at about the same rate as the male faculty. So proportionally, they invented approximately the same. Now, many universities have fewer women faculty as does Stanford. But again, proportionally, they disclose inventions at the same rate. On the other hand, we found that women are much less likely than men to be involved with startup companies, and they are not included often in the leadership roles in the companies that license their technology. And so I think there needs to be a lot more effort in that. Now, I think tech transfer offices need to reach out to diverse inventors clearly and provide encouragement and support. And many, I think, are doing that. There are many programs that are trying to encourage more diverse inventors to disclose. But I also think tech transfer offices are somewhat limited in what they can do. Part of the issue is the population that they have to work with. And if, if the inventors are not diverse in general, then they're just going to have a much harder time. So I think tech transfer offices should do what they can do and to support and encourage. And I think in reality, it's a little bit limited in what they can do. Now, Kathy, I knew you were one of the early members of Ottoman. In fact, you served as its president at one time. So I wanted to know, and, and could you tell us um, a little bit about how Autumn's evolved over time and the value you think it adds to the tech transfer community? Oh, I think Autumn is great. So my first Autumn meeting, or my before Autumn, it was called Society for University Patent Administrators. And as I mentioned earlier in my talk about my history, I was right there at the beginning. And so SUPA, Society for University Patent Administrators, really boring title, <laughs> had a meeting in 1980, and there were 70 people, and I went to that meeting. I became president in the 1988-1990 timeframe. And at the time, we had a two-year strategic planning committee. And one of the things that they focused on was trying to change the name. <laughs> they said, patent administrators is a boring name and we want to change it. So Steve Atkinson, then of Harvard, was the previous president. And he wasn't able to get a vote to the membership under his tenure. But I was the next president. I was the president-elect. And when I became president, we were able to change the name to Autumn uh, Association for University Technology Managers. And at the time, that was around 1990, then the meeting size was around 300 people. So in, um, you know, 10 years, it went from 70 to 300. And now autumn meetings are a thousand usually, and they're really big and they're huge. And I, I don't recognize half the people or more than half the people. I think Autumn has been an invaluable resource to the tech transfer community. First of all, it enables training of new people. And it's a wonderful place. The meetings are great because the issues are all the same for all the universities. How to work with inventors better, how to work with companies better, what should we do with licensing agreements? What about this issue? What about that issue? It's a wonderful place to just talk to each other and share ideas. And Autumn has a wonderful um, network of people and everybody is willing to share. 
Autumn members don't feel like they're competing with each other. They help each other. And so I just think it's been a wonderful organization and it continues to really serve the profession. Kathy, you've had an amazing career in technology transfer. Can you tell us what your career's meant to you and what you're most proud of? Oh, my career in tech transfer has been very rewarding. It has never been boring. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't sound like it. I'm still in this business. I'm an idealist. I I grew up in the 60s and 70s, 70s, and, and I really felt like I wanted to help make the world a better place. I think tech transfer is really important because it helps move the world to innovation. And there are always new things that human beings are just innovative and creative, and you need to get them out there. And tech transfer is about transferring university research uh, to help society benefit for the public good. And that's how we make progress. So I've been most part of being, I've been most proud of being part of this effort and just seeing it grow and blossom and just being an important part of the world. And I, I just, it's been great. Well, thank you for helping Tech Transfer grow and blossom because you certainly did contribute an awful lot to it. So, and I can't thank you enough for all your insights and taking the time today to talk with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Oh, I'm kathy.ku at wsgr.com, wilsonsonsini.com. So they can always reach me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Kathy. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. I've been delighted and honored to be talking to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.